But I contacted the local party and I was straight away, they were like, yes, come on, we'll show you how, we'll get you involved. And it just sort of spiraled from there. I, I only contacted them to say that I was thinking about getting involved and it just sort of steamrolled from there. And then before I knew what was happening, I was in a campaign for an election and then eventually won one in a council chamber. And I'm like, how did, I, how did that happen? My name is Johnny Ball and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. Local government stories remain an important feature of this podcast as we meet Labour councillor, former guardsman, Andy Newman. Andy is a passionate advocate for standing up in local communities to serve again, and his values and standards really come across in this episode. After listening to this, you'll simply want to stand for election in your local council. It's time for you to meet our guest. Joined today by Councillor Andy Newman from North Tyneside Council, a veteran of the Army in the Household Division, and also a recent successful applicant on the Labour Party's Future Candidates Programme. Congratulations. How are you, mate? Good to, good to see you again. So I know we met the other week at Labour Party Conference. How's things? Mate, well, firstly, thanks for asking me. It's a real pleasure to be here. And, you know, things are going great. You know, kids are back at school, so they're constantly on my case. So it's interesting in the house at the moment. We've got three teenage daughters, so it's an absolute nightmare and a two-year-old little boy. So this time he is 10 so if it's if it's not your local residents on your back, it's going to be your kids, basically. Oh, my kids, definitely. My three teenage daughters are, especially this time of year. Um, but first up, if I've just alluded in the intro there that you did serve in the British Army, can you tell us a little bit about your military career and what motivated you to actually stand up and serve in the first place? Yeah, man. Um, it's going to be a bit of a long, long answer to your question here, but because... Uh, I think to understand how I ended up in the army, you have to understand a little bit about my my childhood. And I've always thought, if you if you want a snapshot of society of, of the UK, it's like look at the army, look at the uh, air force, the navy, because every person's got their own story. Everybody's there for a different reason. Um, so I'll take you back. I I grew up in in real poverty. I grew up in a, a fishing village in Northumberland uh, to an unemployed single mum. And in the eighties and nineties, that was tough. You know, it was really tough that one there. And then when my mum met my stepdad, um, we, we, he was working, but we were always hard up. You know, it was always tough. And I suffer from dyslexia, really bad dyslexia. So even though I was constantly trying to school, I was constantly studying, I was constantly struggling. And I just didn't, it wasn't recognised when I was at school, dyslexia as a, as a condition. Nobody knew how quite how to deal with it. So it was kind of like that old joke about you make sure you can lift heavy objects because that's all you want to do when you leave school. It was kind of that type of mentality. But I managed to uh, I managed to scrape enough grades to go to college, but because of my family's income, we couldn't afford things like tutors. We couldn't afford computers. We couldn't afford any type of adaptive technology to help with dyslexia. So 
I got myself into a situation where I just sort of gave up, you know, and it's hard, it's hard to believe, but if I could describe, the easiest way to describe what I ended up like is a bit like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> you know what I mean? That whole bum fluff, unirons, couldn't get out of bed, proper slacker, you know? And it got to just over my, I, I, I kind of give up on my A-levels. And it got to just over my 17th birthday, and I, I kind of had a, an awakening that my life could take one of two directions. I could either do something with my life, or I could stay in this sort of, and there's nothing wrong with it, but I could stay in that sort of, you know, slacker type mentality. And I decided to go extreme and join the army. And it was nothing because I'd, I was never a career soldier. I've never, none of my family have served except for in the, the world wars. But I thought that's, I'm going to do, I'm going to serve a couple of years, try and push myself, try and get some direction in life. And if you want to have a laugh, just imagine Shaggy from Scooby-Doo doing circuit training with a hairy horse uh, PTI standing over him. That's kind of like my day one, week one basic training. So it was, it was tough, but uh, I was determined to go through it. I said I was definitely going to get through it. And yeah, I ended up staying a lot longer than I thought because the original plan was to do four years. Uh, but there was always a reason why I couldn't put my papers in. So I was never going to be a 22-year man. I was never going to be one of these you know, sergeant majors. It was, that wasn't me. I did a tour of Northern Ireland in when I was 18 and one week old, basically. So a week after my 18th birthday, I got deployed to Northern Ireland. Um, came back, met my wife, um, deployed to Iraq in 2005. And I was going to leave the army when I came back from Iraq, but um, I was getting married and I thought, well, it's probably not wise to get married and leave the army at the same time. So I stayed a couple of more years. By this time, the battalion got put under uh, orders for Afghanistan in 2007. So I felt that I should go to Afghanistan. I thought that would be my last one. I'll go to Afghanistan because I felt I should. So off I went to Afghanistan. Um, when I came back, my wife was ill. So I thought, well, I'll I'll get a... I'll stay for another couple of years. And the army, to their credit, sent me to a post in Catrick because my wife didn't take to the army life. So she lived in Newcastle and I used to commute up. Um, and then by the time my wife was recovered, I'd, I got injured on a training exercise. So they gave us a desk job while I was in and out of hospital. Uh, and that that actually led to my my uh, discharge. So I wasn't I wasn't bitter about it. I, I was never going to stay for the full 22 but I, I don't regret it. It, it. it it changed me because as I say, if I look at how my life, the direction my life could have taken, I think joining the army was one of the best things I ever did because it, it kind of framed and gave me some drive. So yeah, that that's kind of a snapshot of my army career. I think it's probably an atypical one because the, the vast majority of people only serve eight to 12 years. So that's sort of, I think it's an atypical you know, example of service. Yeah, I think so. And you've obviously hit some of those key tours that um, you and I have both been on as well. Um, but you you did stand up and serve and, and you're continuing to serve now. So the service continues because you're yeah. in local government and something I evangelise a lot about myself. Um, but what first prompted you, yeah, considering your background, as you just explained in your childhood and growing up, it doesn't necessarily point me to think that going to local government was necessarily a natural path. So what prompted you into that and what have, what have, what have you set out to achieve and what inspired you into politics in the first place? Well, I mean, firstly, nobody in my family is into politics. You know, nobody, nobody's a trade unionist, nobody's an MP, nobody's a city councillor, nobody in my family. I mean, I suspect they're sort of soft left, but they're not the type of 
man the barricade, stand on a soapbox type socialist. It, it, I suspect most of them probably vote Labour, but I couldn't, I've never asked them. So there was no, there's nothing in my family to push me into politics. And what it was, was a, there was three things. There was three things which really started to, to, to frame me to go into politics. The first one was, and very, I think for most people who will get interviewed on, on here is, I just felt that our veterans were getting a, a raw deal. There was just a slow awakening as, as I became more mature and I, I started to look at things more and more. There's just a, I don't know, there was just something inside which said that just something just wasn't quite right. And the first time I noticed this was actually in uh, 2007. Like I said, my wife, she um, she didn't uh, take to the army life. She's from a very close-knit family. Um, so she stayed on the garrison down in Windsor, being in the, the costume guards I was down in Windsor. And it wasn't for her. I was about to go to Afghanistan and she turned around and said, I, I, I can't stay here. She had, um, we had two, well, we had one daughter and she was pregnant with our middle daughter. She had uh, about a postnatal depression and she thought, no, I'm, I can't do this. And I thought, well, actually, that's a, that's a fair cop, you know. You know, I, I think what our spouses go through was sometimes overlooked. And I thought, no, that's a fair one. Go up to Newcastle, um, move back in with your mum and we'll take it from there. And I had her on the phone in tears and I was like, what, what's wrong? And she goes, well, I went to the council to to inquire about getting a house because I'm living with my mum in one bedroom. There's me and Lily in one bedroom. And they said, you've intentionally made yourself homeless. You're not entitled to any house or you're right at the bottom of the waiting list. And I was like, well, you haven't, there's, 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 there's you, the situation you're in. It's something that you need to look at. It's something the council should be looking at. They should, they should understand that there's pressures here that don't necessarily are on the normal pressures of most people on the housing register. So we appealed it and we had the same thing. It came back. That's what it was. And that, that was the first time I, I started to think, hang on, this, something's not right here. And then if you fast forward to by the time I was getting discharged, it was when we had the mass redundancies and we had spiraling suicide rates in the military. Um, mental health was an issue. There was more veterans in custody, you know, so people were getting arrested. There was drug issues. I, I saw friends who were getting uh, discharged days before pension entitlements, and then again issues around housing. And again, I just thought this isn't this isn't right. There's something not right here. And I felt that after the conflicts we'd fought. Uh, the pressures we'd been under, the sacrifices our spouses had made, that we just deserved better. We didn't deserve handouts, or we just deserved our service to be taken into consideration when, when things, when when you applied for services at local level, or even the government, when the government was dictating policies, they should they should take our service into consideration. It just seemed to be glossed over, and it was it was getting a bit of a sore point. The two other things which sort of prompted me to go into it was, I sort of took for granted that from a working class family in poverty, that all the improvements that I saw, now whether or not you like or dislike Tony Blair or agree or disagree with his policies, for people from my background, there was real change. We could afford things or our living standards increased. And then by about 2012 and 2013, and I'm pretty sure many people will argue about the source of what happened, it just seemed that the living standards were getting worse. Things weren't getting better for people. Things were getting worse. And so that was another thing which started to, to prompt me. And then the last one is, and this has been a long trend, a trend that I've, I've, I've noticed since about 2006 onwards, is there was always a really strong working class voice in parliament, in local councils. It seemed to be that voice was always there. 
But that voices seem to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I, I'm not saying that everybody in Parliament or everybody in a council, or everybody who's a mayor should be working class. You, you need your elected bodies to be a snapshot of society. You need everybody's voice. And it just seemed that that voice of the working class was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So those three things combined started really getting me to think about politics. And the inspiration to get involved was actually my wife and my aunt, who I'm really close with my aunt. And I used to go there all the time and I used to complain, oh, they should be doing this. Why aren't they doing this? And they turned around and said, well, why don't you do it? And I said, well, ah, come on now, no chance. You do the thing that, you know, when you're from my background, you, the, the same thing comes up. Or oh, who wants to listen to me? I'm a dyslexic Geordie. You know, who, who's, who's going to listen to what I want to say? I'm just, I'm a, I'm a squatty man. Who cares? Who cares what I've got to say? But the more times that question gets put to you, why don't you get involved? The more you start to think, well, why wouldn't somebody want to listen to what I've got to say? Why wouldn't my view on a certain thing be relevant? Why wouldn't people want to listen to my view? And eventually you think, well, no, I am going to get involved and I am going to try. And to my shock, because I always had this atypical vision of what a politician was, you know, this career politician who's not relatable and, you know, there was only certain people who people wanted to be involved in politics. I, I went to, I joined the Labour Party because obviously that's very applicable from my background and I, I, I really believe in what the Labour Party stand for. But I contacted the local party and I was straight away, they were like, yes, come on, we'll show you how, we'll get you involved. And it just sort of spiralled from there. I, I only contacted them to say that I was thinking about getting involved and it just sort of, steamroller from there and then before I knew what was happening I was in a campaign for an election and then eventually won one in a council chamber and I'm like how did that how did that happen it is for what I wanted to achieve initially it was all around our veterans like I was saying about the housing you know there just was a sense there was a raw deal and it was also about protecting those who are who are the worst off in our society and in this I think North Tyneside, again, is really... I'm surprised that North Tyneside doesn't shout about this as much as they do, but I remember after about a year of being elected, I came up with a guaranteed interview scheme for veterans. I wanted to try and change the council's policy to get guaranteed an interview for veteran service personnel. And I emailed the mayor, and the mayor was like, oh, why don't you come up and speak to us about it? So I came in with this massive pack, this whole argument, this whole... And I was going to sit down and go through the whole thing with her. And you go in and Mayor Norma Redford's a very down-to-worth person. She goes, oh, do you want a cup of tea? Yeah, come in, have a cup of... And she goes, great, yes, sir. This meeting. And I went, yeah, this guaranteed interview scheme. And she just went, great, let's do it. Just like that. It was as quick as that. And because one of the things that I wanted to do around veterans is... You've probably seen council meetings before. We we like to put motions in to go to the government. Why can't the government do this? Why can't the government do it? And that's legitimate. And I fully believe that the council should. It's a collective. The, 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 it's a forum for the collective view of the society you represent, and therefore you should be lobbying the government for things you believe. But it's not good enough to just say what's the government going to do. If you've got existing powers in the local authority, use them. There's no good saying the government should be doing this to help veterans when there are things you can do, and. North Tyneside Council under uh, Mayor Norma Redford and the, the then Veterans Champion Councillor Gary Bell were already doing this. And they said, yeah, Andy, we're already doing this. We're going to look at all our policy. And we redesigned a whole series of policies to support veterans. And people, I remember being down at the Labour Party conference and people were coming up saying, oh, we, we do great for our veterans. We've got all these policies. And I said, well, have you done this policy? Yeah, yeah, we've done that one. Well, what about this policy? And they go, yeah. And they say, oh, well, we've got a dedicated outreach worker. Have you got that? And they're like, oh. How did you do that? And it's sort of like there are powers you can use. And I, I, firstly, I wanted to try and find out how we could use the council's power to do this. But also, how do you then 
advertise these policies so every council are doing it and it's all about trying to develop those networks and yeah so that they, they were the immediate things that I wanted to get involved in it's been really successful and a lot of that's got to do with the fact that and this this is where my big criticism of the armed forces covenant comes in because the armed forces covenant is open to interpretation so what you, it, the driving force behind your local veterans policies tend to be driven by somebody who wants to make that change and if it's not driven by somebody who wants to make that change it tends to become a tick boxing exercise and I was very fortunate that the, the Armed Forces Champion Councillor Gary Bell was very much the same as me. He's ex-RAF as well, so that, again, kind of shows you there's a driving force there. So that's what we want to achieve, and I think we've been successful with it. Do you know what? What you've just described over the last couple of minutes, I was hoping you'd just speak, <laughs> <laughs> is that in order to get something across in terms of communication skills, those directly transferable skills from the Armed Forces, First of all, you've got to get people to feel something. When you were telling me about that and the, the situation your wife was, was faced, I really felt that. You then got to get some get people to think something. And you got me started to think about those structural changes that you wanted to bring in. And then lastly, you got to get people to do something. So you actually were a, a man of action as well. And you really articulated that in terms of the armed forces government. So what I can say is thank you for sharing that because it was, it's a joy to hear you speak and to hear you go through that and, and take me on that journey of that storytelling um, about your life and what's motivated you. And you've really worked out what your why is in politics. And I just hope people listening to this today uh, from a similar background will be inspired as much as I was just listening to that story, mate. So thank you. Um, but on that and those people we are trying to inspire some people, I mean, two thirds of parliament, for example, are from the commissioned ranks. So mm -hmm. why do you think going back to picking up your point about having the working class voice, perhaps um, within politics, what about the voice of the other ranks of which you are championing right now in local government? Why do you think it is that not so many people from other ranks, non-commissioned um, did not necessarily think that politics is a place for them and how are we going to convince them to follow your footsteps? I mean, I, I think the reason why a lot of people from the ranks don't think politics is for them is because, especially when I was serving, the politician was the other. It was it was discouraged. I think the rank and file were discouraged from talking about politics or being involved in politics. They were, I think it was sort of encouraged to be a part of politics. So when you have a career where you're discouraged be, about being political, it then sort of fosters in this them and us mentality. We're not part of them. And then the issue becomes when you're in a hierarchical system, such as the, the military, is that when one of the commissioned officers go off and becomes politics, it's the boss is helping us. Oh, look at that. He's, a, he's one of the, one of the, he's a great officer. He's helping us. But the message never gets them put to the rank and file. Well, you could do it. You could help. You could, your voice is every bit as important. I think there's a tendency to allow the commission ranks to take the weight of campaigning and political systems, which I, I think is very detrimental to, 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 to politics. I think we need, and I've got, I've met some fantastic officers who have become MPs and I've got a lot of respect for each and every one of them, but that voice is missing. The other issue with the rank and file getting involved in politics, and this is more of a, an issue around society. As if you go back 67 years, I think there was a very strong working class pol political you know, awakening. You know, you had people involved in politics. Uh, you, you look at like the, 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 the Skinners, 
for example, the old miners, you know what I mean? People who have been involved from the working class in politics. And there's been a slow de- decline in working class people and politics and identifying with politics. I think there's a real issue here. And the the vast majority of your private soldiers come from that sort of working class environment. So I think it's, it's, it's symptomatic of a wider issue in working class communities engaging in politics. And, you know, I think the only way we solve this is to get, first off, more and more people from working class backgrounds into politics, more people from the rank and file of the army involved in politics to show that it is actually a place for them. And it comes to an interesting thing. I mean, I I went to uni when I left the army, but there's a, a massive lack of jobs in the northern region, so I struggle to get a job. So I actually work retail in sales. And there's an old saying in the in the company that people don't buy from companies, they buy from people. And it's the same as politics. I know there's loads of people who like to talk about political ideology and purity and all that type of nonsense. I don't care about any of that type of stuff. You know, the vast majority of people who, you know, I wouldn't say live on the bread line, but, you know, the average worker who goes to work and provides for their family, they don't care about any of this. So all they care about is who's going to help and who's going to do X, Y, and Z. And if they don't see themselves reflected in a political system, then they become disengaged from it. It doesn't matter if that person engaged is left right center liberal whatever if you don't if you don't see yourself in any part of that political system you know you automatically turn away from it and that's the same as the rank and file the rank and file of the army don't see themselves in that political system and therefore i think that contributes to them turning away from it and thinking it's the the zone of the other the zone of the commissions the zone of you know, the career politician, and that's what we need to change. And that's where I think hope Johnny will come in. I hope you'll come in, mate, because I remember when I first said I wanted to get involved in politics when I was going through the Careers Transition Partnership, and what they turned around and said is, make sure you know how to play golf, because that's where all you, that's where everything's going to be decided. And I was like, what's going on? And the amount of, I wouldn't say mick taker, but you know what I mean, all the things coming your way and stuff like that. But how, how, how much better would it have been if they said, oh, really, you want to be involved in politics? I tell you what, there's a there's a guy here who will show you X, Y, and Z, how Parliament works, how things work. That would have been a much better way of, of doing things because we need more people from the rank and file of the army to, to show their experiences. And they're down to work. I mean, the, the way the rank and file are, there's a problem. You solve it. They don't care about, like I said, political ideology. They just see a problem that needs solved and they solve it. And the more people like that in politics... I think the better the political system will be. Well, amen to that, brother. That's all I can say. And uh, no, absolutely. Campaign force, you know, we we will, we do uh, have a relationship with the Career Transition Partnership and we're hoping to see this, the skill set and this world open up to all ranks within the armed forces. And I think there's something else that you was really poignant there was about how the British army does reflect and indeed the Royal Navy and the Air Force reflect society. So therefore, a way of improving our politics is by tapping into those 15,000 that leave every year because you're going to get a more representative democracy in our local government and right up to our parliament too. So, yeah, you've really articulated it probably better than I can. That, that's for sure. Um, but And I know it's been so great meeting you as well because I've just you know found your story really inspirational and, and and you've been sharing that story and that's the other way that we're going to inspire people into politics and one place you did share that story um is on a large stage at labor party conference and you spoke on a huge stage tv cameras and all that good stuff i mean how did you prepare for that and what was it like speaking on a platform what kind of did you lean into from your skill your toolbox to get through that <laughs> well 
In, in all honesty, because I mean, the fringe event I was speaking at was on obviously pe- politics and how do you support veterans in local politics? Uh, you know, how do local authorities support veterans? And I, you know, obviously, I had my opening address, which I, I had it all wrote down, very factual. You know, what's the key message I want to get? So that was all planned. And then I sort of put myself into the the position of the people in the audience. You know, if if I was in that audience and we were talking about how local authorities can support veterans, what would I be asking to try and prepare for the questions? So I prepared some stuff and that lasted about two seconds because the questions that came the other way were not the questions I was expecting. Um, so you, if, and I said, you know, it's funny, I was saying this to my wife because my wife was saying today, are you going to prepare anything for this interview? And I turned and I says, well... What good does it do? It never lasts two seconds. It goes out the window and I end up just, as I say, waffling, uh, you know, and that's what I, I did there. There was a, there was, uh, I think the first question was about, um, you know, how do we get more people in the army to, to vote? You know, how do we get that political, how do, how do we re-engage people in politics by letting them vote in the army? Which is, you know, there was a, an answer there. And then the other one was about how do we encourage more people to get involved in politics? And, I started talking about progressive patriotism because it's something I'm really, I don't think that quite, I don't think that might've been the the answer to what she was asking, but it's something I'm really passionate about. And I started talking about progressive patriotism and what patriotism is to me and how we can fight for this, this view of progressive patriotism within the Labour Party, because I think it's something the Labour Party maybe might've gotten wrong in the past few years to, to diverge away from progressive patriotism. And for the interest of people who are asking, you know, what progressive patriotism, what does it actually mean? It's just patriotism. I mean, patriotism to me is just the love of your country. But if you love your country, you, you love it enough to say what's going wrong. And I remember when I first got involved, people were like, I can't believe you're in the Labour Party. You can't believe this. And I was like, why? And they, they oh, well, they're not patriotic. And you think, if you go back 15, 20 years, there was never a question mark about a patriotism of a political party. It was just different views. And in the past few years, we sort of, the Labour Party sort of didn't fight for that space. They just sort of allowed them. So then other parties were defining their policies in terms of patriotism, rightly or wrongly. And the Labour Party sort of let that go. And it it sort of made me start to question, well, what do I mean by patriotism? If I say I'm patriotic, what do I actually mean? And when you get rid of the button, the cocktail party and the flags, because I don't know if I, I said this at the, the the conference. You know, my old house. I don't, can't do it in my new one because it's a small garden. But I had a ten foot flagpole with a great big union flag out. Member of the Labour Party. UKIP came knocking on the door for a conversation. They got a conversation, but not the conversation they were expecting. But there was this view that you've got a union flag, you can't be Labour. And I, I, it started making me question: What is patriotism? And to me, progressive patriotism is about defining social change in. Pr- progressive and patriotic terms so there's nothing patriotic about food banks food banks is the most unpatriotic system you can have you have uh, uh, the fifth or sixth richest country in the world depending on who you ask where you have parts of your society relying on food banks that's insane that's not patriotic and if you just if you say we need to challenge food banks because it's our patriotic duty to challenge that then i mean obviously different political parties will you know say have different views of how you challenge food banks but we should be defining that in terms of patriotism there's nothing patriotic about you know people stuck in low-paid low-skilled jobs with not enough money you know working 40 hours a week with not enough money to put food on the table while you have people hoarding money in offshore bank accounts and tax avoidance schemes that's not patriotic there's nothing patriotic about a tax avoidance scheme and 
I really think if Labour is to really start to be a, a government again, a party of government, they need to get a hold of patriotism and then redefine it in terms of social democracy. Because that's what I believe deep down in my bones. If anybody wanted to describe what do I believe as a, a veteran, a socialist, well, social democracy, socialist, whatever term you want. And like I say, I don't like these terms. I think they're inflated and, you know, you get people with placards outside if you get the wrong term and stuff. I think we need to really get hold of patriotism and redefine it and, and start talking patriotic again because that's what I am. I'm a patriot and I love my country. That's That's really interesting because... I mean, it's funny, actually, because you said that you weren't really into the whole ideological stuff, but I think someone could write an essay on what you've just described there, because that was fascinating. Um, Patriotic, um, progressive patriotism, I I think I I found that um, really, really interesting. And in terms of flags as well, I mean, I've got one behind me now, obviously, the Afghan flag, um, which is from Herrick 15 and signed by all the guys uh, on that tour with me. But um, one thing about flags, it was really interesting back in 2012 when the logo of the Team GB, I think we sort of reclaimed the flag a little bit back then uh, from, let's just say, uglier elements of society who felt that they owned the flag. And and the more that we can talk about in all of our different segments, whether it's the Labour Party, whether it's sport, whether it's, you know, the the British Army, if we can sort of um, be proud about our flags and in a really progressive and, and positive way, then I'm all for those kind of conversations. Absolutely. Um, so, no, that you, you got you got me on that one. And um, but with all of this, so clearly that's you've got a, a big mission there, and it, it really comes across when you're speaking. But what are you hoping to achieve by the end of all of this? I announced earlier on in the intro to this podcast that you just successfully got onto the the, the specific um, candidates program that the Labour Party have, have just uh, announced. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that's going to um, help you achieve your end goals in elective office? Yeah, I mean, I mean, firstly, I mean. I, I don't like, like I was saying, I don't like factional politics, factions and stuff like that. So I, I was quite surprised when I, I, I thought I'll, I'll chance my arm and I'll apply for the future candidates project. But I don't identify with one group or another. I think if something's right, it's right. If something's wrong, it's wrong. If you want to work with me, I'll work with you. I'd, I think politics works better when you agree to disagree <laughs> within and, and work towards a goal. The the, the future uh, candidates project uh, program. I'm very conscious that I know very little about the wider political lifestyle. You know, you came straight from the army, straight into local politics. You've concentrated on North Tyneside Council. And I don't know very much about outside of this. How does the how does the wider Labour Party movement work? How does the National Executive Committee move? How does the PLP work? That type of stuff. And I'm hoping that this will be a great boost in knowledge because if I am going to go higher, which I wouldn't say that I'm going to, but I wouldn't say that I'm not going to go for it if one seat came available. Then I, I'm very conscious that I need to up, up my skill level on this. And I mean, the, the question always does get, do you want to become an MP? Do you want to become a mayor? Do you want to become a metro mayor? Do you want to, when you, and when I first got involved, I said, yes, 100%. That's where I'm going. That's what I want to do. Because I, I do believe in everything I've said. Everything I've said, it's, it's it, deep down, I believe it, you know? And I, I believe we need real people with real experiences, you know, involved in politics. But whilst I still think that I've got something unique to offer, in the past six years, my eyes have been opened and there are hundreds of people which have got just as equally unique life experiences myself, all trying to do good and trying to improve society. That's that's the vast majority. There's this, 
view of politics is, is I think, is very bad because people view politics as all out for themselves and stuff. And yet my experience is that they, that the opposite is they're all trying their best to, to help everybody. And they've all got unique life experiences, which are, are fantastic when you go into it. So I wouldn't say that I'm not going to go for a seat. If one became available and I thought I had something to offer, I would definitely go for it. But I'm hoping that this, this program will, will help with my skill level. Cause that's the one thing that I don't have. I don't have a wider understanding of parliament and that's, something i need to work on no that's that's, yeah, that's really um really refreshing uh to that that honesty about you know I, I think that's what we're good actually we as a community we are aware of those skill sets if we're going to go on operations then we want to upskill before we go on that operation and the same is with politics if there's a sort of gap in our knowledge and our uh, skill sets then we'll go and seek that information and then then tackle it head on but absolutely um, would this just before we close out, Andy? Is there anything that you think you're looking back that you would uh, say to your uh, your family, or or to perhaps um, a uh, a non commissioned uh, aspirant politician that's listening today and thinking, do you know what? I want a bit of that. Was there anything you'd advise them and to inspire them to close out with? Believe in yourself, a hundred percent. Believe in yourself because whether or not it's from the rank and file of the army or the the working class areas where people don't think politics are for them it is for you believe in yourself believe that you have something valuable to to offer and believe that no matter what shortfall in your skills that you have there's a way of helping there's a way of getting that information getting that skills and just go for it you have every right to be a politician you have every right to be involved in politics and your voice matters that's the key thing to me no matter what you think about your background your service, the, your childhood, your life, your voice matters and it matters more than ever because if we're ever going to have a, a better political system, it will need everybody from every background, from every work of life getting involved. So believe in yourself. That's what I'd say. Councillor Andy Newman, <laughs> thank you so much. Is it weird hearing that still? It, it really is. I, I even say to the council officers, it's Andy, and then our council even, it's Andy, man, it's Andy. Don't, it still feels really weird. After five years, it's, it's still weird. All right, Andy. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Catch you later. Bye-bye. Thanks to our guests, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate, or become our mate. Thank you.